0: Apart from the ironclad essentials of the gospel, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, where our sin debt is canceled, his physical resurrection three days later, whereby our eternal life is secure, there is perhaps no more important epiphany in the Christian life, no more essential aha moment, as it were, Then the moment you realize that God really is more for your joy than you are yourself. That the gospel really is a great and grand conspiracy made by the Trinity in eternity past to bring glory to God by rescuing wretches out of the domain of darkness and making them radiant royalty in the kingdom of Christ. That the gospel is the great and grand conspiracy to reverse the trajectory of insane and sinful mortals who are heading at breakneck speed into all that brings death to change that trajectory towards the mountain of God and all that brings life. That is what the gospel is. It's a great and grand conspiracy to show off the infinite love and goodness and grace and justice of God, who is purposed to save his church, who had earned eternal wrath, and to make them instead eternally glad through Jesus Christ. So, of course, one of Satan's most potent tactics is to convince us that that's a lie, that God is primarily a cosmic buzzkill. In fact, that was his tactic from the very beginning, to trick the woman into believing God was holding out on her. So she grasped for something that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. She wasn't ready for it yet, though. She grasped, which, of course, is what sin always is. It's a moment of temporary insanity where we believe for a moment that we know how to become happy better than God does. And apart from his wisdom, and apart indeed from him himself. This is where Lewis absolutely nails this fallen predicament that we find ourselves in, in one of his perhaps most oft quoted but so good quotes, so I'm going to quote it again from The Weight of Glory. This is coming from the, the place where so many Christians think, I just desire too much. If I could just kill my desires, then that would be the thing. He says, Well, If you actually look at the New Testament, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, while infinite joy is offered to us. Kind of like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he doesn't have a category for the offer of a holiday at sea. We're far too easily pleased. That's what he said. Sin is just being too easily pleased. But God really is ultimately for our joy, but not a shot-in-the-pan endorphin rush that fizzles out in an instant, but the real thing. The aged wine of true, lasting, eternal joy. And the happy, healthy Christian is learning that this is true more and more. And there's no better proof of this. The most obvious thing is all the things we love God made. But other than that, there is no better proof than this than the fact that the entire story that we are in, the trajectory of redemption, is headed towards the biggest party that the creation has ever known. That's where the story is headed, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the text in Revelation 19, where we get a glimpse into it, it says that the angels are celebrating so loudly it sounds like thunderclap when they see the bride presented to the bridegroom. That was awesome. (laughs) That was awesome. That is where the story is headed. Because this is who our God is. And this is where the story has always been headed. Over and over again, even in the Old Testaments, the prophets strain to lift the heads of a stiff-necked, idolatrous people, of a grumbling people, to wake them up to the glorious and gladdening future that awaits the covenant people of God, who will trust in his grace alone. Isaiah 62 For Zion's sake, so that's a name for the people of God, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. So God is saying, I will not stop until that happens He continues, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or consider Jeremiah 31, 11 through 12. So he's saying when Jacob is finally ransomed once and for all, looking ahead to the new covenant people, they shall come and they will sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, Lord and over the grain, think bread, the wine and the oil. So the story has always been headed for the people of God towards a great celebration, towards a marriage celebration, towards the rejoicing over true food and best drink, over bread and wine. So in light of all this, Perhaps we shouldn't be all that surprised at Jesus' inaugural miracle when his ministry first began. What John says was his first sign. So his first neon pointer towards this is who I am. It was at a party. It was at a wedding. And they had run out of wine. And so Jesus turns about 180 gallons of purification water. Into the wine. I looked it up. That's about a thousand bottles of wine. And it wasn't just the cheap stuff. It was the good stuff. That was his first sign. You want to know who I am? A thousand bottles of wine at a wedding party. That wasn't an accident. Why? The bridegroom had arrived. The promises of God were yes and amen. And the celebration was getting underway now. And so today we continue on in our series where we are walking through our liturgy of, of covenant renewal, explaining the why behind each element of our service. And today, you probably guessed, we're looking at the element of communion. And my goal in this series has been not just to inform our minds with some interesting takeaways as to how the liturgy works. Of course, I want that but I desire so much more than that. I want to not just inform our minds, but I want to inflame our hearts. Yes, I want us to be unified in understanding the biblical rationale for our liturgy, but even more, I want to stoke the embers of our hearts with scripture truth to awaken us even more to the majesty of Christ and the scope and beauty and expansiveness of his gospel which we reenact each week through the liturgy. Yes, I want us to participate with joy and vigor and intelligence, but not just because I said so, but because we are seeing the truth of the gospel of Christ in deeper ways, which then compels us to. So I've begun today with an extended introduction for communion, because communion really is the, the high points. It's, it's the pinnacle of the covenant renewal service. For it's the moment in our service where the Lord Jesus himself, after speaking to us through his word, that invites us to come and have table fellowship with him. He invites us as his bride to get a taste of the banquet. For communion is an echo of the eschaton. It is an echo of the ultimate place the story is headed. It's a picture of the great banquet that we will soon partake of. No, communion is not just something we tack on to the service. And it's not just something we do monthly or quarterly. We do it every week because it is where we come to the very heart of the gospel. Fellowship with God and communion with each other, the Bride of Christ. So in the remainder of our time, we're going to consider communion, or what the church has called throughout church history, of course, as the Lord's table or the Eucharist. And one quick comment on the Eucharist. So sometimes that word feels a little funny, perhaps because of Roman Catholic connections, but it literally just comes from the Greek word Eucharista, which simply means thanksgiving. So he broke the bread and he gave thanks. It's that Greek word. That's why we call it the Eucharist. So that is a a perfectly useful and good and helpful word. And the the Eucharist meal itself is overflowing with rich typological connections to the Old Testament. So there's so many things that we could reference. But for our purposes today, I simply want to highlight two ways that we can understand the Lord's Supper. Namely. One, it is the better Passover from Exodus. And two, it is the better peace offering from Israel's worship. It's the better Passover and it's the better peace offering. So to get us going, let's read one of the accounts of Christ instituting communion. So if you'll open up to Luke 22. So we'll find a formal institution of the communion in in all three of the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And John kind of does it in a roundabout way in, in, in John 6. But we'll go to Luke 22 to read his account. We'll begin in verse 14. And when the hour came, so the hour to have the Passover meal in context, This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus is about to go to his death. He's already told his disciples this several times, but they weren't able to comprehend it yet. And and now here he uses a tangible picture to explain to them what is about to happen. Yet this is far more than mere metaphor. In this moment, he explains that, that he is fulfilling and reconstituting the Passover. This is what he's doing. And children, you remember the Passover story, right? So the Passover story is when God's people, Israel, was enslaved under a cruel Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who did not remember Joseph. And they were in terrible bondage to someone much more powerful than them. Then Exodus 2, that's the reality. And then in Exodus 2, something wonderful begins to happen. Beginning in verse 23, the the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. and They cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then we get the best news they could have ever heard. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel And God knew. And so God sent Moses as his appointed messenger to set them free from their bondage. But as you will remember, Pharaoh's heart was hard. And so God sent various plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt, but Pharaoh would still not let them go. I will not let your people go, he said. And so the tenth and the final plague was the worst. And it was the one that would finally bring freedom to Israel. God said that all of the firstborn sons in the land will die. However, God graciously made a way to avoid this curse. And it required the sacrifice of a lamb that had no blemish. And you had to not just kill the lamb, but then you had to take the lamb's blood and you had to paint his blood on the doorposts and the lintel. Of the opening. And when the angel of death saw that, he would then pass over you in judgment. And I'll pick up in Exodus 12. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, and this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And of course, after this is when God led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, where he destroyed their enemies and towards the promised land. And so that's why they kept the Passover. It was a constant memorial to God's salvation that he accomplished for them. So so this is the meal that Jesus and his disciples are sitting down to memorialize. However, Passover was always pointing to a greater salvation, a fuller salvation, a final salvation that would not be for just Israel and not just from Pharaoh, but would be for all people. And would free us from the great enemy of Satan and sin and death. And at the Last Supper, Jesus was revealing that he was finally the fulfillment of the Passover. And Jesus fulfills the Passover story both in that he became the firstborn son who died, who absorbed the curse himself. And he became the perfect lamb whose blood spared us From the death that we deserved. And so the communion's connection to Passover is is pretty explicit in that they're sitting down for the Passover meal. But we also see it, of course, in John the Baptist's declaration when he sees Christ walking before him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world now. Or 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened. So leavened there means sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us therefore celebrate the festival. So that's about as explicit as you could possibly get. And then Revelation 5, we visited this, but we can't see it enough. When the heavenly host realized who Christ was, they said, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so, saints of God, when we come to the table each week, we come as the covenant people of God to memorialize and partake of the Lamb of God who has covered us with his blood and who has freed us from slavery and who has carried us through the Red Sea and the wilderness into all the blessings of the Promised Land. And so when we come, we come together, declaring like the angels the worth and the beauty of Christ for what he's accomplished for us as the Passover lamb. So, yes, the Lord's Supper is the better Passover. And also, the Lord's Supper is the better peace offering. So you'll remember perhaps from previous weeks that the covenant renewal service, which is the liturgical paradigm that we use as a church, it follows the sacrificial patterns that God ordained for Israel to do. There's a redemptive flow to the worship service in the Old Testament that we borrow and use in parallel. So remember, after being called by God, they were first required to bring the sin offering to cleanse them for the service. And this is, of course, what we do in the confession of sin. And then they would offer the ascension or the burnt offering, which connects to the consecration element in our service and so we spent two weeks on that. And so if you missed that, you can find that in our podcast. And then after the Ascension offering came the peace offering. And this was the high point in their service because it was during the peace offering that the worshiper actually got to eat from the sacrifice. The worshiper actually got to enjoy table fellowship, as it were, with Yahweh, everything had been dealt with. And Yahweh brings them in to commune with them. And so we learn about the peace offering most explicitly in Leviticus 3 and 7. And so I'm just going to read a few verses from here to give us categories for this. Chapter 3 in Leviticus, it says, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meetings. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then Aaron's sons shall burn the peace offering on the altar on top of the ascension offering, which is on the wood of the fire. And it is a food offering that is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then chapter 7. And the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day that is offered. So, there's a few things that are happening here that, that deepen our understanding of communion, where we see these connecting. First, notice what they had to do with the sacrifice. They had to place their hand on the head of the sacrifice and then kill it themselves. That's not something the priest did, they actually killed the peace offering. And that placing of the hand on the head of the peace offering was a profound moment. Because in that moment, as they touch the sacrifice, they are identifying with it, saying this death should have been my death. You see, so so they touch the sacrifice and then they kill it, signifying that should have been me. And this lamb is in my place. And so this is a, a powerful moment. And then notice what happens. The peace offering is placed on top of the ascension offering. So remember last week, we present ourselves as a living sacrifice and our, our worship is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But on top of that is the peace offering that mingles with our aroma that the Lord loves and is well pleased with it. And when we come forward in communion, as a people, we take our hand, in our hands the body and the blood of Christ and we reach out together and we touch the peace offering and we associate ourselves with the Lamb recognizing that his death should have been our death or as paul says famously we are proclaiming the lord's death until he comes and then just like the peace offering we take and we eat and as we do so we receive fresh spiritual nourishment from the body and the blood of jesus christ the lamb of god for as christ himself says in john 6:55 for my flesh it is true food and my blood It is true drink. So friends, know that that communion is not just a sign. It's not just a picture. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a symbol. But in communion, Christ himself administers very real grace to those who take and receive by faith. And it's not because anything magical happens with the elements themselves. It's just bread and wine. There's No hocus-pocus happening to the molecules on the table. That's why we aren't scandalized when the kids have some bread afterwards. It's because it's, it's just bread. But rather, when we receive it by faith, Christ imparts real grace in that moment. He establishes us as his bride, and he connects us deeper together in fellowship. And Christ invites all baptized believers who are able to consume food to his tables. Which means even our little ones are welcome. At Pilgrim Hill and in our denomination, the CRVC, we embrace the practice of covenant or paedo-communion. And that's the conviction that Christ welcomes our little ones to himself, his covenant children. In two weeks, I'll unpack why this is the case a bit more where where we get that from scripture and why this is such an important conviction for us because christians do differ within the body on that and that's okay we are committed to being unified in the essentials at pilgrim hill and then having charity in secondary issues as we sharpen one another and so i do recognize that there is different perspectives within the church on that but for our purposes today i want you to know that this table is open to all baptized believers that can sit at a table, even if it's still in a high chair. And the reason baptism is required is because this is a covenant meal and baptism is the sign of the covenant. It is the sign that you're in the visible church and it is the first step of obedience from our Lord Jesus for any who are his. And so the church has always held that baptism is the first sacrament and then it's the doorway to the table, the second sacrament. And as we've said before, one way the church can, I believe, miss the spirit of communion is by turning it into a time of individualistic soul-searching where you're trying to dredge your soul for any turn over every single rock, to make sure that you're prepared for communion. Well, saints, we've already confessed our sins. (laughs) And that... Communion should not feel like a funeral dirge. There's bread and there's wine. This is a time to celebrate together. This is a time to have a party. And so as we come up, we come really looking everywhere except at ourselves. We're looking first and foremost at the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're glorying in his beauty. And we're overflowing with Eucharist for his gospel. And we also come looking at the body of Christ, the church. And we're glorying in what God has done. Every other saint who is in line for you is the one for whom Christ died. And he has bound us together as a covenant people. It's amazing how our individualistic times can even turn something called communion into, okay, so I look down and I really try to go deep. No. No. We come with gratitude, looking at Christ, looking at what theologians call the the totus Christi, the total Christ, Christ, and then the body of Christ. And as we all come forward together, we come to place our hands on the Lamb as a people, to identify ourselves as one body in union with Jesus Christ. And communion is also a wonderful reminder that Christ not only loves us. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This shows that Christ loves us, but it shows us more. It shows us that Christ also likes us. I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. You were handpicked by Jesus Christ to have a seat at the table. That is, in communion, the second Adam invites us to eat Not forbidden fruit from Eden's tree, but better fruit from Calvary's tree, his body and his blood. See, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, it resulted in death and destruction. But when we come to eat the fruit from Calvary's tree, it gives us life and redemption. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, they experienced nakedness and shame. But when we eat the fruit from Calvary's tree, it shows us that we are clothed now with righteousness and dignity. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, their fellowship was broken and strained with God and with each other. But when we come to eat the fruit from Calvary's tree, we are reminded that we have been re fellowship with God. And he earnestly desires to have us together. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, it was because they listened to the lies of the serpent that God is harsh and withholding. But when we come to eat the fruit from Calvary's tree, we come to listen to the truth from our Savior that God is generous and forgiving and abounding in covenant-keeping love. And that far from withholding from us, he is far more for our joy, eternally so, than we can even begin to fathom That is, we are reminded that this whole story is headed to the greatest feast with the loudest laughter and the highest happiness. And at communion, we get a foretaste. And kids, here is your poem for this week. It's called A Seat at God's Feast. On the night before Jesus was crucified, He gathered his friends for the Passover meal inside. Yet this meal that marked Israel's deliverance, Jesus would now give a new significance. So after he knelt down and washed all their feet, he showed them the true meaning of what they would eat. He looked in their eyes and then broke the bread. My body will be broken for you, he said. Now pick up the glass and drink the wine in for this is my blood that is shed for your sin. Jesus showed how his death would put us at peace, that through him we now all have a seat at God's feast. We call this communion or the Eucharist, for with thanksgiving together we celebrate Christ. So let us come to the table with glad reverence, for we are welcome to Christ with full acceptance then let us look all around and marvel to see that through Christ we are all a forever family. Yet this is a taste of the great supper to come when the bride and the lamb feast in God's kingdom. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for communion. We thank you for this holy memorial of all that Christ has done. And Father, I pray that even as we come to the table tonight, that you would administer fresh grace. I pray that we would all come with a deeper joy and a deeper marveling at what, what Christ has accomplished, at the solidity of our salvation, that nothing can pull us out of the hand of Christ. And Father, I pray that as we come, we would have a deeper sense that you not only love us, but you really like us, and you had earnestly desire to fellowship.